Hey guys, welcome to Hope It Helps. My guest today is an expert in neurosales and has been working in the sales industry for over 20 years. He graduated university with a degree in neuroscience and while searching for new job opportunities, landed a job in sales and it was from there that his sales career began. His passion and desire to understand the science behind how and why people make decisions enabled him to stand out among his peers and as a result has led him to have a long and successful career in sales. After working in the industry for many years, he decided that he wanted to take his knowledge and experience to help others and set out to build his current company called The Proverbial Door, where he works as an executive coach to sales professionals and helps multinationals maximize their growth and sales performances by incorporating the latest scientific research from the top neuroscience, psychologists, and best performing businesses in the world. During this episode, we discussed his career working in sales. He shared his knowledge and experience to help us understand how and why people make decisions. And we talk about the importance of interpreting and understanding our emotions and the emotions of others in order to create deeper connections and relationships. And if you'd like to learn more about his work, you can go to theproverbialdoor.com. Previously working in sales myself, it was so interesting speaking to him. And I think anyone currently in sales could really learn a lot from our conversation and the work he has done. He has built an incredibly successful career due to his understanding of human behavior and his desire to help others. And the best piece of advice he could share is to be kinder to ourselves and become more in tune with our emotions. Please welcome to the show, the incredible Mr. Maid Amin. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. So Maid, uh, we got put in touch through your wife, Emma, who is also on the podcast recently. And she explained to me what you do, that you're an expert in neuro sales and you combine three very unique areas of uh, behavior science, uh, consumer psychology, and sales to put them together, and you have you're an executive coach and a trainer. So I thought that was a very unique skill set to have to match those three things together. And I think you might have quite a unique perspective on sales. But so I want to talk to you today about your experience and your journey and how you got to where you got today. But why don't we start at the beginning? Uh, just give everyone a little bit of introduction about yourself, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And. Um... Hopefully we can cover as much as we can in a short amount of time. You know, when you're obsessed about a topic or, or three or four topics, it's a lifetime of learning. So it's, uh, it's always a challenge to share as much as you can that will help people within, within the short space of time. Um, <clears throat> so just very simply, you know, I have the best job in the world and, and that is to help people convey themselves, right? Convey who they are in a, in a strong eloquent uh, and in a way that changes people's states right it moves them to take action because you can communicate to someone but if you don't move them to take an action whether it's to inspire them whether it's to coach them whether it's to help them <clears throat> it doesn't really make a difference it's you know knowledge is not power knowledge is potential power right it's what you do with it that's so important and, and, and that's really why I have the best job in the world, because I get to be able to help people express themselves in whatever way, in whatever means of life that they're in, right? And, uh, you know, you find that communication, being able to communicate and show your value is more important than having the technical value, because if no one knows about what that value is, then, then they won't know your true work. So my, my job is to help people do that. Right now, the predominant focus of my job is to work with B2B salespeople. These are people whose very job and livelihood is to help them sell more. And I teach them the tools and the techniques and the strategies to be able to do that in the modern B2B world. It's very, very different than what it used to be even just 10, 12 years ago. 
And um, sellers now <clears throat> in a recession, 80% uh, of salespeople won't hit their target in a recession. And that's a staggering amount. Normally it's about 50% that don't hit their, sell, their target. In a recession, it's 80%. 20% of the remaining 20%, those 20% of people just about hit their target through huge amounts of pain and techniques and tools and you know, scrabbling around to find discounts and specialized offers, right? And that's hard. And then there are 10% that outperform all the time, even if it's a recession. My job has really been for the last more than six years to figure out who those people are, how do they do it, and, and can we take those learnings and apply it to other people? Um, so that's really the background. And yes, you're right, there's neuroscience, because I come from a neuroscience background. I, I majored in neuroscience in university. Um, I was hugely interested in cognitive psychology, right? And, behavioral psychology. So I integrated that into what I learned in neuroscience. And actually that's what separated me from everyone else that I was competing with in the sales world. This, my desire to understand what moved people to buy, right? how and why do they make the decisions that they make? Not just do sales, sales, sales in the usual sales world. So, so that's, that's my background. We, we, we provide consultancy to businesses. We do training, we do personalized coaching as well. Uh, and really it's just to make sure that we move as many people as possible in the world, in the B2B sales world, into that 10% who are always outperforming. And everyone can do it. Believe me, if I can do it, and I'm not a salesperson, I wasn't. Uh, I was not a typical salesperson. I come from a technical background, a science background. I was very introverted. If I can do it, anyone else can, as long as they put in the hard work and they have the right tools and strategies. Yeah. So that's in a nutshell my background there. I hope that helps. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, so I think something you said that was super interesting about communication. And like you said, it's one thing to convey a message, but if you can't move people with that message, then it's just, you know, words at the end of the day. So on the topic of communication and moving people, how do you start communicating in a way that starts hitting people maybe in, I guess, in an emotional manner to, and to I guess, motivate them to start making those changes and those moves? Yeah. Well, the first thing, and you've, you've hit a good point there. The first thing is uh, what motivates people. And most of the time, we give that a cursory thought process. You know, we, we slot them within a category that we've been taught should be, should be the category that they fall under, right? What moves people is, you know, things like money, uh, your power, desire, move away from fear, all those kind of things. But most people don't take the time to think, what will motivate the person I am talking to, right? And ultimately what motivates people are needs. It's not money. Money is a tool. If I gave you a million pounds, if I gave you a million pounds right now in your bank account, right? And I said, here is a million pounds. What would your, what would your initial feeling be? Uh, I guess, maybe financially secure for a short for a short time you'd be happy or sad i'd be happy you'd be happy right um what if i told you you can't touch that money if i gave you a million pounds in your bank account now i said you're not allowed to touch that in fact i blocked you from touching it but it's just there you can log into your account and you can see a million pounds you can see the six the seven digits you're like yeah are you still as happy 
No, definitely not. Definitely not. So money's a tool. And most people think ROI, value, business value. These are, it's part of the equation. What really moves people are their needs, right? And there are so many frameworks out there around what are needs, right? You've got Maslow's hierarchy. You have Tony Robbins with his six human needs, which I prefer to use because it's so grounded in so much research and so many people. But ultimately, that's what moves people, right? And those six needs are the need for significance. <clears throat> so ego, you know, to feel self-worth, to feel your peers recognize you, right? Right, to feel that you've made it in the world. That could be an example. Certainty, so stability, right? You, everyone has a need for some form of stability. You have uncertainty or what they call variety, right? So adventurousness and variety. COVID right now, most people were fed up, not because they were necessarily locked in, but because they weren't exposed to the variety of life. And we all need some form of variety. Um, the next one's love or connection. Um, so what have we done? We've said significance, certainty, uncertainty, love connection. And then there are two remaining ones. Growth, personal growth, growth of the people around you, growth of the people you love. And then uh, contribution the need to contribute to others. Let's, just like what you're doing in this podcast, right? You want to give back from all the things that you've learned. You want to contribute and you're feeling happy by doing that. And you've been growing along the way, which has made you even more happy, right? Um, ultimately, those are the emotions. Those are the needs that are driven and, the, and they create emotions. And there are two emotions, fear or desire. That's it, right? The fearing to, and we move away from something that causes fear we move towards something that creates desire. Now, there are some technicalities and science around when to use each one when you're motivating uh, or when you're pushing someone to make a decision. <clears throat> Not pushing, but you're persuading someone to make a decision. But those are ultimately the emotions. When you are talking to someone, you've got to understand what is their burning need. And they're usually two out of the six that I've just explained that are the predominant needs. We all have a little bit of each but there are two that probably drives every decision and action that we take, right? Um, so understanding which, which one of those two are predominant in the person you're talking to will instantaneously help you figure out what it is you should be saying. Why, what will make this person do what I would like them to do? And hopefully they see that it's in their interest to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So it's quite a, big question, quite a big question that you asked, but I've just still, <laughs> hopefully distilled that down. Yeah, no, it makes it makes perfect sense. And I'm actually familiar with the Tony Robbins uh, needs that, that you're speaking about. And I thought, I like how, like you said, it's quite simple. There's six things. So it gives you a lot of a lot of kind of direction and guidelines on, you know, just a couple of choices on what they might be. So how do we start? Let's say me and you meet, you're trying to sell me something right now. How do you start understanding what my two predominant needs are? Is it through questioning or is it through you've done some research on me in the past? How, how would you go about that? Yeah. So, so bear in mind that those two predominant needs are your biggest life needs. However, when I'm on the, when I'm on the call with you now, uh, if I'm selling you something or it's my first meeting, what's your first need? Your first need is how can I get this person away from me? Or how can I quickly figure out this person's a waste of time or not? Okay. That's... That's the first need. So here's what I advise. Be very clear and honest with yourself about what this person needs are and the moment of your interaction. 
it's all well and good that you and I, I'm going to try and tap in and find out which of the two predominant needs are. But right now, that's not what you care about. Right now, you want to you want to learn as quickly as possible. Am I a time waster or am I someone of value? Make sense? Yep. So I need to I need to start by giving you value straight away. And the first thing that you've got to do is you've got to do your research and your homework. Uh, <clears throat> too many buyers are exposed to salespeople that are lazy. Don't give them the respect in terms of let me do my homework about you and come prepared. They come to the, they come to the call or the conversation having done no preparation and asking them wide open questions that frankly really, really annoy the buyer because it just shows you haven't come prepared. In fact, you're asking me to give you information so that you can sell something to me. It is completely disrespectful to these buyers. So do your research about the person that you are talking. And there are four spheres of research, right? Number one is industry. Do your research about the industry that this person is working in because every decision they're making is within the context of an industry. Everything's done within context. We are contextual human beings. Good, bad, light, light dark, cold, hot. Everything's in context. And you have a lot of salespeople that will ask, um, well, I have to make 100 calls a day uh, or I have to make 50 calls a day or 20, whatever it is, I have to make a day. I have to a high number of calls a day. I can't do research on every one of those. Fine. Do research on the industry. It's the most scalable way for understanding what the context of a company. And then you can do a two-minute or three-minute research about each company because if they say they're growing by two, they're planning to grow by 2% in 2020, right? COVID aside, let's say they're planning to grow by 2% in 2020, but the rest of their industry is growing at 5%. That tells you far more than just the 2%, right? Or if they're growing by 2%, but the rest of the industry is growing by 0.5%, that tells you something as well, right? So understand the industry, because if you're an industry expert, which is what they want you to be, you've got their attention. You know what they're doing. So industry is the first sphere you want to research on. The second sphere is company. Research the company that you're talking to, right? Very straightforward, right? Look at their finances. Look at what they're trying to achieve. Look at the strategic decisions being made, all those things. We can come into that later on if you want. The next one is understand the role of the person. When you were in sales, right, did you, and, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, but this is really to help your listeners. Uh, who did you sell to? What were the job titles of the people you sold to in your last company? In my last company, so we had um, we were selling clinical trials to pharmaceutical organizations. So clinical trial managers, uh, VPs of research and development. Those would be, I guess, the two main people I was reaching out to at the time. VP of research and development, right? And I spent five years selling to chief R&D officers of the biggest companies in the world. So I know this space very, very well. So, so if I was to ask, if I was to say to you, name the top five KPIs that this person is held accountable for in their job, i.e. when their manager sits down with them at the end of the year and does a review of whether they've done a good job this year, could you, would you be able to have named the five biggest metrics or KPIs that that person's job role was accountable for? If I'm honest, Probably not. I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't know, I wouldn't be that clear on it if I'm very honest, probably. And, yeah. and by the way, it's a very common thing, right? 
And, and the first step is if you don't know something, if, if someone helps you figure out some of the things you don't know, you now have a framework to learn something that's going to help you, right? Very few salespeople actually know what, how the people they're selling to, how their buyers are being rated in effectiveness in their own job. Mm. They're busy throwing ROI, throwing value, throwing this. But the person you talk to might be saying, well, this doesn't help me get promoted. It's not even in my KPI spread. It's, it's not even in my MBOs. I'm not even going to be tested on this. I don't care, right? So know the role of the person that you're selling to. Know what motivates them. Know what, how they're being uh, targeted. Know how they're being assessed of whether they're being effective or not, right? Because it hits into one of the six needs. And then the final one is know about the person. That's when you start to get into the six needs. So at the beginning of the call, do your research. And then the second thing you need to do, why are you doing your research? is because you are trying to inject what I call a jolt. It's like a lightning bolt. Because they're in a, you're changing their state. They're shifting their psychological state. And in the, in the early 2000s, we had a sales trainer come into the company that I was working for. In, the early, so in, the early two, in 2008 or nine. And back then, in B2B sales, we were taught that buyers are neutral. They don't dislike you, but they don't like you either. But they're open to be convinced. That's no longer the case. Not even close. In fact, they downright hate you in a lot of ways. They also hate the buying process itself. So no matter how good you are, we can come on to this later on, buyers hate the buying process. It is painful. It is complex. All of those things. A recent survey by LinkedIn found that 25% uh, of B2B buyers felt that or perceived the sales profession, the whole profession, is morally and ethically challenged. That means a quarter of the buyers that you're talking to likely feel that you have moral and ethical challenges. You're not going to be truthful. 40% of buyers believe, another status, 40% of buyers believe that salespeople generally are not trustworthy. Wow, that's so, a lot. So they're, that's a lot. So they're not neutral, right? In fact, they're looking for the first thing that you're going to say that's going to confirm that, right? And there's, there's a bit of psychology there in terms of confirmation bias. So you've got to inject something so powerful. And, and the way that you do that, the way that you change someone's state is to inject something that's surprising. Our brains are wired to notice something that's surprising. So you've got to teach them something. You've got to teach them something about either their industry, their business, or something that they're doing, or teach them about, and, and sellers are really at a, at a privilege here. I speak to, you know, I have five conversations five times a day, five times a week, with heads of sales of, big, of large companies, small companies, medium-sized companies. I speak to more sales leaders in a month than a sales leader will speak to another sales leader in at least a year. That means I have such privileged information that they find valuable. I can share with them what the realities are in terms of not just the trends, but what are some of the best sales leaders doing versus what are some of the worst. So you've got to inject something that's based upon research, something that is novel, something they didn't know or didn't fully appreciate. It's a business conversation. And you've got to inject it in such a way that it literally jolts them, it shocks them, and 
they're kind of like saying, hang on a second, what? Right? Even if they disagree with you, that's fine. It means that you've hooked them in and you have a chance now to share with them and say in a professional way and say, they may disagree with you, but let me explain to you why actually this really is the case. So does that make sense that, that you've got to do your homework, give them respect and courtesy, do your homework, and then start the conversation with a jot, uh, a, a, an insight or teaching them something that is going to surprise them and make them want to learn more. That's curiosity. You want to arouse their curiosity as well. That's at the beginning of a conversation, but the rest of the conversation, that's something else. That's a whole, whole different thing as a journey that you take them through. No, 100%. Because uh, so in my role for, the, for, the, for like three years, I was a, a BDR. So I was purely doing cold calling and lead generation. And I had to learn how to use LinkedIn, how to post, do all those things. So everything you're talking about is the work that I had to do on a daily basis. So it's really interesting hearing someone break it down in such a processed way because i was just doing it you know as picking it up as it goes along but one thing that people used to tell me uh working in sales is and i used to get asked this a couple times like throughout my career they're like are you sure you want to be in sales because just a lot of people what i learned is you can be good at sales but sales might not necessarily be the be for you and so what i loved about sales was the ability to I like working with people, meeting new people, and the creative and psychological aspect behind sales is what I really enjoyed. But what I didn't like, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this because you've been in the industry for quite some time. It's, I felt that it's a profession that lacks um, appreciation because you could do all, I could do work 12 hours a day, do every single thing by the book that I need to do to hit my number and still not hit it because it's sales. So you're not always gonna hit your number and you're judged based on not hitting a target and there's like oh he's he's not good he didn't hit, hit his target which i felt was uh, i thought was unfair because it kind of removes all the effort that you have put in beforehand and it's also a profession that i've noticed and please correct me if i'm wrong is that i hit my target okay next quarter double the target oh hit it again good double and double. so it's it's an it's like an endless cycle it's like an endless cycle that there's no escape from. What do you What do you think about all that? Yeah, you know, your question has so many different layers and and, and, and dynamics in there, right? Dimensions. Sorry. Let's let's try and break it, like break down a few things. So the first one about sales not being for everyone. It isn't for everyone. It's just the reality. Is entrepreneurship for everyone? No. Is being a lawyer for everyone? No. Right. Um, sales, I find is so akin to entrepreneurship, it's scary. Because you're based upon results at the end of the day, right? And, and the results tell the story. And when you're an entrepreneur, you've got to figure out how to sell your product. You've got to sell your product and service. Sometimes it's going to be you on your own or you with a partner. But at the end of the day, if you don't sell properly, no one's going to buy your stuff and you won't become successful. And sales is like that. It is not for everyone, right? And, and I think you've got to, you've got to figure out um, why are you doing sales at the end of the day, right? Is it something because you're thrust into it and you didn't really have a choice? And by the way, I was there. I, I, I had that situation where I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I saw a bunch of sales 
job, job uh, listings more than anywhere else. I looked at money. I thought maybe I'll try it. My first year of sales, at the end of that first year, I had to resign before I was fired. Right? So, so I didn't come with such great experience at the beginning. Right? Um, you've got to I, I ask yourself why. Why do I want to be in sales? Is it because I love working with people? Is it because I love business? Is it because I love the money? Right? If I love the money, why? You've got to be clear with yourself on that. So there's a whole different area around that we could we could get into, but you've got to kind of you've got to realize the fact that sales, just like everything else, is not for everyone. Okay, and I'm not here to push sales on people. If it's not for you, it's not for you. Right? If it is for you, then I would love to help you. Right? Um, what you said about the numbers, right? You used to work really hard and you didn't get the numbers, and then people will look at you as if you're not a high performer. Um, I don't know the circumstances, but to me, that feels like a leadership problem because sales is not just about the numbers. It, you know, a large part of it is, you know, and, you know, I always advise our clients that, you know, about 50% of how you target a person in terms of their, their job title, right? The MBOs that we talked about and the roles should be about the number. But what you have to recognize is that the number is the end goal. It's the result having done all the right things, i.e. you've conducted all the right behaviors. So if you encourage and support and coach the right behaviors, the numbers will come. The fact that you worked so hard and didn't get the numbers means what your leader should have been looking at was this, this person's clearly got the will. They're not lazy. They're trying to do the work, right? So we've got someone that has the right attitude. What skills or what things do we need to teach and coach this person now so that attitude is translated into results and happiness? So to me, it feels like there's a leadership situation there that, where they need to kind of ask those questions, which is, are we just looking at numbers and not spending enough time looking at the behaviors, right? Uh, you know, uh, observing the qualitative sides of sales because there's a, a large number of qualitative elements when it comes to sales. Um, so that's probably something, you know, anyone here who's a leader, it doesn't have to be sales, right? You want to look at the qualitative as well as the quantitative, right? The proportions are going to be different depending on your culture and what you're trying to do, but there has to be an element of the qualitative because without that, you're not going to achieve the quantitative. Um, and then the third thing which you said, was just, you know, I hit it one quarter and then the next quarter, it's like forgotten. Well, let me ask you, right? Elon Musk right now is considered one of the most successful entrepreneurs, right? Yep. But if he didn't deliver, if he didn't deliver next quarter, if he didn't deliver the quarter after, and the quarter after that, and the quarter after that, and the quarter after, that, after a year, do you think people still can, uh, consider him as the most successful entrepreneur of all time? No. Probably not. People are quick to forget. No, it's, it's not about quick to forget. Um, it's, about, it's about people want consistency, right? And you may have, you may have been amazing in the past, but not anymore. So why would I look up to you? Why would I want to learn from you? I'm trying to learn to be consistent. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Life is about continuous growth, if you're doing it right. 
and people want to continuously grow. That is that is that is how that is happiness distilled down into one word, which is growth. Right? Um, if I'm not continuously growing, then everyone else that relies on me is not going to grow. And 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 that is why the previous quarters. It's not that they don't count; they do. But you need to find a way to continue continuously grow. Look, COVID and the recession right now, right, is a great situation. Hey, we might have grown in the past and we did very well, but if we don't adapt, if we don't change what we're doing, we're going to die out there, right? Now, again, there's a leadership element here because if you are hitting 120% of your goal for the last four quarters, then all of a sudden something goes wrong, then to me as a leader, that says something's gone wrong, right? It's not that this person is suddenly bad. It's that something has changed in this person. Right? And it could be anything, right? But something has changed. So I, as a leader, need to have that honest and comforting conversation with this person to figure out what has changed and can we help this person get back on track, right? Um, so that's how, that's how I view sales, right? Sales is very much like entrepreneurship. You've got to deliver results, right? But there is a qualitative side. Um, you're only as good as your last quarter. That's because the whole world is growing. It's constantly moving. So you need to grow with it. And people want to grow with you right? Your manager doesn't want to have someone that's not growing because it hurts them. So likewise, if you're a manager that's not growing, you hurt the people that rely on you to feed them, right? To give them the salary, to do the right. Okay? Um, and, then the, uh, and then the third one, which is, um, you know, doing the work. You've done all the work, but it hasn't worked out. That's a leadership thing. You want to look at the qualitative side to figure out, well, does the, is this person exhibiting all the right behaviors? but just not getting there. And that means we need to figure out what's that little thing that's not getting them there because they're doing the hard work. They're passionate. They've got the right attitude. Now, if you didn't have the right attitude, that's a very different story. Right? Yeah. Um, but those are the kind of three things that I've taken from that large questions to ask. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it, make, it makes a lot of sense. And it's, I really like how you explained that there's a split between the quantitative, which is, like you said, a big part of sales, and it is the end goal at the end of the day, but also to pay attention to the qualitative, is this person displaying the right attributes and the right behaviors? So it might just need to be a little tweak, because I think, like you said, if the attitude is not there, then it's a, like you said, it's a completely different story, because no matter how much quality you put, if the attitude is not there, it doesn't matter. If anything, the attitude probably is more important than you know the, the technical side that comes behind it. Um, one thing that you you said uh, like i read about you is you said that sales has changed a lot over the last over the last like 10 15 years and you said at the beginning of the conversation as well so from your from your experience what have what has been the biggest change that you've seen and then i've got a covid follow-up for after that because i think some things might have changed completely now as well yeah there's, there's a few things that have changed uh, so so sticking aside from COVID, um, but from the last recession, there are a few things that have been changed. Number one, there's a heck of a lot of salespeople out there, far more than what they used to be. And, and the problem is, and you hinted at this actually with your last question, which is there's no standard for sales. Unfortunately, with, you know, for example, to become a doctor, there is, there is a pretty much global, some sort of global standard that you have to achieve to be able to be a good doctor. Same with legal profession, same with the engineering. Sales doesn't have that, which means that there are a lot of, I don't want to say lacks, but there's a lot of gaps that people squeeze into. 
Um, and because of that, you come across some unethical behaviors, or maybe not unethical, but behaviors that are substandard. Um, so because of that, buyers have now been exposed to so much of that, and it's created a perception about the rest of sales. Technology has only exacerbated that situation because with social media, with emails and the proliferation of all those things, far easier to have some sort of touch with a buyer. And it's far easier for that buyer to now be exposed to some of those less than, less than um, effective methods of communication that buyers are using. So, so that seller's using, sorry. So buyers have become more resistant, far more resistant to sales approaches which means that salespeople have to become even more creative at how they approach it, right? And they really have to think outside the box. The other trend that's happened is that uh, there are far, far more people involved in a decision-making process than ever before. A few years ago, CB, which is now part of Gartner, did a research, and they found that in the average complex purchasing process, and by complex, we mean things like consultancy services, you know, not just, you know, aerospace and defense and the big industrial. It's like, you know, consultancy services, things like that. You know, not things where it costs maybe a few thousand, but we're talking 20, 30,000 and above. Um, there were, on average, about 6.8 people involved in the decision-making process, right? That's, that was up from 18 months. They did that same research 18 months before, and the average was 5.4. So it's moved up from 5.4 to 6.8 just within 18, 24 months. And that's, that's grown again. Um, so what that means is there's just far more people involved in the decision-making process. It's more complex, it takes more time. And it also unfortunately means that they coalesce around common denominating factors for any solution. And the most blunt one is price, right? Um, so that's not easy for it. So the salesperson has to now deal with more people and more varying personalities and more varying interests, right? It's not 6.8 people all within IT if you're selling an IT solution. No, it's IT, it's marketing, it's finance, it's HR. It's varying interests. And if you think each one of them have different MBOs, different performance-related reviews, very different interests. So you're now having to speak to every one of them and align what you're doing to all. Um, so sales cycles have now become a lot longer. Um, the last recession has made people more aware of options. So it's so much easier to start a company now. And there's higher levels of competition on average, right? Not every industry, but on average, there's higher levels of competition. That means that it's very hard for a buyer to be able to differentiate between one and the other. So the seller has to now differentiate through other methods and get very clear about what makes them different from everyone else. Not just the product and service, but them as the salesperson themselves. Because as I said earlier, your knowledge is hugely value as a salesperson to the buyer, not just your product. And service. The other thing is that there is, and this is the biggest one actually, there is so much information out there, blogs, articles, like it's so easy to just share information now. The buyer is now more confused than ever about what decision they should be taking. 
And if you go slightly earlier in the process of decision-making, they have a problem figuring out which information is reliable to learn from. So the buyer now spends such a huge amount of time researching that it's just overwhelming and it's taking them away from their day job. So they're frustrated by that. And they're frustrated by the fact that they have to validate the data more, even more, validate the sources, validate what they're saying. This, there's a survey that was done by CEB, but also done by a bunch of other companies like CSO Insights, Forrester, all of those. Um, and what they'd say, and the number is not too important. Some are 50%, some are 57%, some are 60%. The number is not too important. What is important is that when your buyer contacts you or they're ready to speak with you, it means that they are over half of the way through their buying process. It means that they've already made a decision or an opinion or created an opinion about which solution is going to be right for them. So now you as the buyer, if they're engaged with you or they've contacted you or they're willing to accept a call, chances are that you're now going to be commoditized. They've made a decision or an opinion about what they need and now they're trying to see if you fit within there and therefore can they get it at, the best, at, the best, at a better rate, better price. So that puts you as a salesperson at a disadvantage. So there's a few things there, right? Number one, more salespeople and more buyers are involved in the process. Number two, so much information out there, which means that buyers are confused, right? And they have a hard time trusting salespeople. Um, number three, the trusting is a bigger issue, but let's put that separately. They, they find it harder to trust salespeople. Number four, um, they, they're already more than halfway through the buying process, which means that you're no longer influencing them like we used to back in the 90s and early 2000s. Someone else is influencing Right. So those four things put you at quite a bit of a disadvantage. Those are the trends that, that, that are happening since 2008. Um, do you want me to talk about what COVID's done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was, because I was just thinking over these last uh, couple of months, like I've been working on the podcast, but I have a lot of my friends that are still in sales, and I was just thinking, like, how are you selling in during this time? Because no one wants to spend money if companies are closing down you know everyone's trying to salaries are getting cut so how do you still i can imagine selling during the last six months and probably continuing on for like for a while it's going to be a lot more challenging than it was before because all these things that you've said on top of like all these financial like struggles and difficulties yeah yeah well the first thing we've got to do is change the language right which is uh change your language away from saying no one is buying anymore to questions, right? Um, if you ask yourself a good question, you're going to find a good answer. If you ask yourself a bad question or a lousy question, you're going to get a lousy answer. So if I say, how can I possibly sell when no one else is buying? That's a lousy question. But what I could say, what I could ask myself is, okay, we're in a challenging situation. Who is buying right now? Who is, who is thriving due to COVID? And how can I get them to see the value of what we have to offer? And that's going to help them. See, that's a totally different question to the first one, right? And, and I've got to tell you, Adonis, it's, it's not that there are uh, no one's buying, right? It's just that there are different people buying now, right? Okay. And companies now have, companies and salespeople now have to pivot. 
Now, if you have a specific set of territory, right, and it's very hard in which to do that, uh, I can guarantee you that there are still people who are buying. You just got to find out who they are. Um, so first thing that I advise companies, and this is not anything groundbreaking, right, is double down on your clients. They already know you, they already trust you, they've already made the decision with you. In fact, in situations where people are trying to create certainty in an uncertain world, right? So have you ever noticed that when there's loads of uncertainty, we just go back into what's certain, right? We cut, cut corners, not cut corners, but we, we stop spending on certain things that we feel are nice to have and we stay on what we think are need to have, right? right? We're trying to create certainty when everywhere around us is, uh, is a huge amount of uncertainty. That means that your buyers are not going to leave you, right? Or, or you have to do something really, really bad for them to want to leave because right now they cannot afford to create uncertainty in their business. They are trying to consolidate certainty, right? So double down on your buyers. The second reason why you need to double down on your buyers uh, is because your exist, sorry, existing clients, not buyers. The second reason why you need to double down is don't give them a reason to put you into the nice to have category. Okay. Because they're going to decide who is a nice to have versus a need to have. Who is, who is absolutely necessary versus we can do without them for now. Do not give them the excuse to put you into that nice to have category. So double down on your relationships with them. Double down on the value that you give them. Double down on your advice in how you're gonna help them navigate out of the situation and create more stability through what your, your products and your services. The, reason, the third reason why you need to really double down on your clients is because they are going to be your greatest source of growth. Upsells, cross-sells, etc. They are more likely going to buy from you than from a new business. I think the figure is that they're five times more likely to buy from you than, than a new business person. Right? So... If you are involved in working with clients, if you're an account manager or if you have a hybrid role where you do both, focus the majority of your time on stabilizing that client base because doing that is going to help you grow. So that's the first thing that I advise in the COVID world. It's not groundbreaking or brand new, but what's groundbreaking and new is the method by which you do that because most a lot of companies don't do that necessarily so well. Um, the second thing is um, <clears throat> the COVID situation. Uh, selling through virtual like this is so unfamiliar and unnatural to both parties. And there are a whole host of techniques. In fact, I did an interview with uh, Mark Bowden just, just the other week, um, which, which, you know, if, if you want, if your listeners want, I can share the link to that. It's recorded. But he's, and you know him, obviously, from your body language, right? It, just for anyone who's listening, he's regarded as the number one expert in the world in human behavior and body language. In fact, former FBI agents say he's just like the best in the game. And, and there are techniques that you can use to influence and make your buyer feel comfortable, as well as make yourself feel comfortable during a Zoom call, right? Some are technical things like, you know, having lights around you and having some space, something interesting around you rather than being close up like this, for example. That, that makes a 
huge difference, right? You can see up my nose, hopefully I've trimmed my nose hair, right? And versus here, you're far more open, far more welcome, right? And you have to use more gestures, right? You're going to have to become more extrovert in what you do. And there are various technologies and techniques that you can use. Um, but nothing is, even in the face of all of this, nothing has really changed from the very, very first things that I said are important to engage with your buyer. Do your research, right? You've, now is the time to stand out from every other bad salesperson out there. In recessions, have you noticed, well, what you will notice is in this recession, it exposes the extremities in our world i.e. the really the bad and the good noticing the bad and the good becomes so much easier in recessions unethical people unethical business models right wirecard for example those things become far more clearer during a recession but the great ones also stand out in the recession so do your research right use technology like video platforms to send emails for example right um, there are so many techniques out there you can use to get, get the attention, right? So double down on the things that makes a salesperson a great salesperson, right? I call it business person before salesperson, right? Be that business person to your buyer far more than what you used to be, right? Get to know the industry, get to know what they're going through, figure out how you're going to help them thrive when everyone else around them in their industry is finding it tough. You do that one thing there and you think about that one thing and ask yourself that question, which is how can we help our clients grow while everyone else is probably declining? And, and I would almost guarantee, and if you answer those questions correctly, I would almost guarantee that you're going to have more success than someone who isn't asking those kind of questions. That's really what you need to think about over and above what I've just said, go back to what makes you great, right? Do your research, know the person you're talking to, figure out how you're going to be able to help them and figuring out a way of engaging with them with even more of a job, right? Even more of a bolt that will actually help them notice you and take attention and kind of observe and then ask questions. They want to learn more. From yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it makes complete sense. And I think it's so such an interesting approach to be doubling down on the clients you have, maintaining them and upselling through them rather than seeking out new business. Because naturally, I think in sales, for the majority of people, it's about generating new business unless you're on the partner side where it's about upselling usually through you know your partners and the relationships that you have. So it's interesting to make, it's almost, it's almost like a counterintuitive shift, but not really. You're just focusing more on what you, what you currently have. And I think that's, really really interesting that you know you look at it from that perspective One but i'm not saying i'm not saying just forget about new business no of course right? yeah. I, 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 and it's important to make that distinction because sometimes people hear what i say and they think well what about new business i'm not saying forget about it i'm saying get your clients in order right don't forget that that's huge right as a business but by the way if you get your clients in order what does that mean it means more testimonials it means more referrals Right. It means, you know, they're going to have people in their community that they can refer to. It means you're going to be able to create symposiums around them and invite new business. Right. So doing that well is only going to help your new business process anyway. Right. 
So um, yeah, I just wanted to make that uh, make that distinction and clarity. No, for sure. Um, uh, one thing you said earlier, which I thought was that statistic really surprised me, is that forty percent of people or buyers have a negative view of salespeople. Now, do you think? And I don't. I, I can co- totally understand why, because they probably get bombarded all the time with like you know emails and LinkedIn requests and all that kind of stuff. So it makes sense. But as salespeople. I think I this is my perception or how I like to think about it. If you can create value for your for a potential customer in the long term it will pay off. But sales is more of a sh- it's it's a long-term game but it's a short-term game at the same time because you go by quarter by quarter. So is it the, do sales people have the wrong perception about sales about I just need to, you know, call 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 hit the numbers ir- irrelevantly or is it more from the other side, do you know what I mean? Like, what do you think? It's a cultural situation with sales and sales leaders, right? Um, especially if you work for a public company, you are, it's very hard to get that balance of short-term gain, but also managing the long-term growth as well. It's very hard to get that balance. And the reality is that a, a public company's value is based upon what they're doing quarter to quarter. So it's very hard to get away from it's not that it's more that the sales approach is transparently about them and not about the buyer. Right. Uh, So what I mean by, what do I mean by that? I don't, it doesn't mean that you have to be, it doesn't mean that you're giving. So when I talked about teaching your buyers, something new, right. Giving them advice to come up for hypothesis, obviously you're going to give them advice that leads them back to what you can help them with. Right. This is not about being charitable, right. This is not purely altruistic, but it's so transparently about the seller that the buyer knows that already. They're not giving, the seller's not giving value. They're not talking about how they will be able to help the buyer, genuinely help the buyer. They're talking about how we can sell to the buyer so that they help me as a salesperson. And I, I, what I'm saying is that there's, there, are some, there are a bunch of salespeople that, that, that are doing that, that it's just so obviously about them, right, that a buyer is just not going to want to work with them. Right now, there are technicalities about you know giving three times before you can ask for something, and you know the rule of three to one, and, and and that's a longer discussion. We can cover that if you wish, but ultimately, it's is my language and my approach serving the buyer, or is it just transparently serving me? Hey, uh, you know, here's an approach. Um, you know, I, I I get this all the time. <clears throat> I know his word for word. Someone sent me a LinkedIn message this morning. Uh, I noticed your, your profile. I too come from a consulting business. I know how hard it can be to that. I would like to have a conversation with you. Right? So this is what I talk about language. Bunch of eyes. Right? It's all about you, not me. Number two, you didn't even bother to do your homework. I mean, you just, you basically said, let, let this is what this person said to me. Hey, I know I, 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 right? And after I've said all this, I, um, give me some of your precious time so that I can figure out what to sell to you. And I can take away some of your precious money as well. Right? It's ridiculous. And, and I have all my content out there. I'm not hiding anything. Everything's out there on the net. My website, my, my Instagram, my, my Facebook, my LinkedIn. It's all out there, my Twitter, it's all out there. All you had to do was just do a little bit of homework to see what I could be facing. 
at least come with a hypothesis. So um, it's 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 not just the culture. There is an element of the sales culture and the management, right? There is that element, but it's also about the training that we give salespeople. Because I even when I worked for the best of the best companies. Um, very small amount of the training was about the buyer. More than 98% of it was about our products, our angles that we need to use, the approach that we need to use, you know, all that kind of stuff. Such a small percentage, if any, is about the buyer. It's about understanding the buyer. Who is your buyer? What motivates them? What are they trying to do, right? What are their personality profiles like, right? And, and there are four different, according to Merrill Reed, the psychologist, there are four different personality profiles, right? So you've got the driver, you've got the, you've got the um, analytical, you've got the amiable, and you've got the expressive. They each have, they see the world through their own different prisms, right, point of view. That means they use specific language. They have specific goals, right? Not many people are taught by those things, right? We're just taught from a seller's perspective, and that's the training that we've had. A small amount is about the buyer. And that makes no sense because the buyer is the one that's going to buy from you, right? It should be the other way around like that, not this way, this way, right? And, and I think there's, there's, a, there's a gap there when it comes to that, right? We're sell it, it's not the seller's fault necessarily all the time. We're just trained in a certain way that is no longer aligned to, the, to getting the buyer's attention. No, I think that's, you hit it spot on about particularly about the training part it is primarily on the selling how am i gonna convey the right message write the right email reach out and you do that little bit is just about like you said the little bit of research on okay what is this buyer who's what's his position what is he like all that kind of stuff but you're so right that it it should be flipped because they're at the end of the day if they don't buy from you then everything i'm doing is going to be pointless so no i think that's such an interesting way to to look at it and i agree i totally 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 agree um one thing that i've heard you say today a couple of times and I've, I've been picking up on it is how you're reframing questions in your mind on you know don't look at it like this look at it as challenging and i've i love like psychology and neuroscience okay, i i'm interested in it but i have no expertise whatsoever i've just read a couple of books that i really really liked there was one called um thinking fast and slow by daniel uh, that that book was incredible Re yeah exactly he get, totally gave me a new perspective on like how we work as people but what's why but the way you look at things is very because you have a neuroscience background and i'm sure it's played a big role in you know in your sales career you said that emotions drive 90 percent of our decision making so but a lot of times we're still trying to sell people with logic and i know with your with your company that you guys use scientific methods to help people in their sales processes and to improve their sales so how do you translate the emotion using a scientific method because scientific methods are quite processed and quite logical so how do you translate that into creating the emotional change that you're trying to okay yeah that's a big question um firstly we have to realize that emo emotions people say that perception uh is reality it's not true emotion is reality right um you know we have seven billion people on the planet there are seven billion different realities not just one right or not just a few um em emotions are so much of of 
of how we view ourselves and others and the world that we live in and our place in that world, that if you deal with the emotions first, you're going to more likely create a platform to be able to act in a certain way. Uh, let me give you an idea of that. In neuroscience, um, there are five steps in the sensory to behavior process, right? Um, you've got the sensory error, so you know, touch, hot, cold, light, what we see, what we smell, what we taste. That's the sensory, right? The second area is perception. How do we perceive what we're sensing, right? And experience and memory has a very big part to play in that. But how we per perceive something will, deter will determine the second, the third part, sorry, which is the emotion or the feeling behind that, right? And, and, and for those listening, you might think, well, hang on a second, perception comes before emotion, so surely perception will tell what reality is. I'll come on to that in a second, right? Um, so emotion is everything, right? The emotion is the third one, sorry. Then you get thought. So after I've sensed something, I have a perception about it, I've created an emotional connection to it, right, which is critical to the memory and, and uh, memory and, and, and uh, neural process, right, because nothing goes through without the emotion, right? Then I create a thought about it. Once I've created a thought about it, then I take a behavior and action. So it's very important to know that ROI and value demonstration is, is important. You must have it, right? It's table stakes. So for anyone that plays poker or has played poker, table stakes is just you have to have it to just have a seat at the table, right? Value demonstration and business value, you must have it to have a seat at the table. But it's the emotion that's going to change things, right? And it's understanding and changing that emotion. Now, to talk about perception and, and, and emotion here, right? Because people say that perception came first. Um, recessions are not great, right? But there are so many stories of people who are exactly the same situation in a recession, but one thrives and the other one doesn't, right? Um, so many people that have had personal tra tragedies, right? Um, there are so many stories about that, right? People that have come from very, very tough circumstances. Why is it that those people that come from those tough circumstances, some of them, rise to the top and become the best version of themselves and do some incredible things for their, the community, their community themselves, the world? And there are those that have, that come from an abundant background, right? Privileged background. They had everything. And yet they turn to drugs, alcoholism, so many different things. Um, the way that you view a perception, the emotion that you create from that perception will determine your thought. You can have a bad situation happen and you perceive it as bad, but the emotion you now attach to that is that you say, this is potentially a good thing for me. I had someone that we used to work with who at the age of 20, I think it was 26, He's had a football accident and suddenly became paralyzed from the neck down. 26 years old. Most of us would look at that and say, well, life is over. 18 months later, this person is starting to take his first steps. Wow. Right? Assisted, assisted, but starting to take his first steps. Right? He, he created a great emotion. 
from a perceptually bad situation, disastrous situation, right? You can have something that you perceive no one in this world, when they hear that uh, paralyzed from neck down, no one will perceive that as a good thing. No one, right? It's perceived as bad because you've now lost pretty much most of your functional practice, right? But the emotion you attach to that, right? It wasn't that he wasn't upset, yes, he cried. But he then said, I'm going to have a different emotion from this now. I'm going to make this into something else. I'm going to create something more. This is going to test me, right? So emotion is really important to the process. Now, why did I go through all of that? Because you've got to know what emotions your buyers are going through right now, right? Or anyone that you're selling to. By the way, everything I'm talking about here isn't just about the sales process. If you're looking for a promotion, you've got to know and do your research about the, the manager you're speaking to, what's going to motivate him or her to help you get promoted, right? It, it's an evergreen thing, right? It's persuasion. But your buyers right now, what emotions are they going through? They're freaking out. I, I train quite a lot of salespeople. The people that I train, right? I'm hearing stories where, where they're saying, hey, we we're so close to a sale, but then this person got laid off or got furloughed all of a sudden. Buyers are going through a situation right now where they are, they are having their budgets slashed, right? Most of them, right? Are having their budgets cut. And now, and the headcount is being cut. They're being asked to do the same, if not more, with less people. So they're having to take on a lot more responsibility, a lot more work, a lot more time, which means time away from their family, time, all those things they're going through right now. On top of that, they don't know if they're going to still have a job in one week's time. True. Most salespeople don't even bother to just think about that, like to really appreciate that. So those are the decisions that are being made, right? Um, sorry, the emotions that are being felt. And then the second one is the emotion, which is the six human needs. They, they elicit, they create an emotional satisfaction. So on my website, I said 90% of the decisions being made are based on emotion. It's not that they're both just an emotional reaction, right? Which is absolutely true. It's also based on satisfying an emotional need. Mm. Even someone who is logical or tries to be fully logical, like a robot, like Spock from Star Trek, right? Believe it or not, even that person is satisfying an emotional need. The emotional desire to feel like they're logical, which is really contradictory, right? It's completely ironic how that's the case. But that's true because within their circle and how they're perceived, their significance, they're perceived as logical, right? Somewhere down the line, being illogical equaled pain. Somewhere in their past, something like that happened. Being illogical equals pain. So they are staying logical, or what they perceive to be as logical as possible to avoid the pain. doesn't mean that you're going to cause a painful situation to them. It's just that they've associated that past experience so that any future circumstances where they're illogical or emotional will mean painful. Right? Some people, even down to how they deal with their children, which is, sounds, which is big, right? They won't show emotions to their children because they feel that being doing so will equal some form of pain, even though that may not be the case. So think, be clear and be appreciative of the emotions that your buyers are going through right now, right? 
The other part is the mindset, right? Your own mindset. So you probably saw this on my website. Your own mindset has a very big impact on how you conduct your sales activities, right? You're going to be going through a lot of peaks and troughs. So get to understand your emotion as well. What's in it for you? Why is it important for you to make those calls every day? Um, so once you understand what they're facing and once you understand what they're feeling and how they view their world, you're now in a position to then be able to use that in an ethical way to show them that what you have is aligned to satisfying that emotion that they have. I'll give you two examples. You might sell to a chief medical officer or chief marketing officer, whoever it's chief medical officer of the company. One person is very risk averse. They're trying to create certainty. Another person is very ambitious and they like to take risks, certain risks, calculated risks. They like new things provided that they want. Those are very two very different emotional satisfactions. That means I need to figure out which one of the two they fit into and use the language and the benefit statements that align to each one. If I'm talking about, I'm talking about the latest innovative products and technologies that we're doing, that's going to set them up for the future and things like that. To the person that's all about certainty, I've lost that person. Likewise, if I talk about certainty to the person, and, and this person, she's, you know, she's really ambitious, she's like, I, I just I don't want that, right? So align to the emotional values of that person and what's important for them, right? And use emotional benefits and statements, right? Um, you will find that if you do that, then that person is more likely going to champion your solution compared to if you just have business value, right? You've, yeah. got, to have, you've got to have both. Hopefully that's answered your question. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. You've been answering the questions so well. <laughs> Don't worry, they've been awesome. Uh, I think you speak about things in such a, like, it's such a different perspective than what I've had. So I'm learning so much from this conversation. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, one thing that I was thinking about, because with your neuroscience background and behavioral psychology and so on, you, you have a very good, strong understanding of how people work and how people think. So, and from the books that I've read, they say that, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, that at the core, we're all the same. We all operate in the same way, but at the same time, we're also, humans are probably the most unpredictable creatures too. So how has, so in your experience going into the sales world with your knowledge, with your background, with what you know and how to read people and situations, what was something that you learned that kind of took you by surprise that you've learned about people now? That's a really good question. Um, what was something that I learned about people that took me by surprise? I think... What I learned, and this was a few years ago, but what I learned that took me by surprise was the power of status quo. And what I mean by maintaining status quo. Um, if you go back into our evolution, let's say 100,000 years ago, where we were hunter-gatherers, people talk about fight or flight, um, but they've, they've missed one element in there that actually is just as important. Uh, and it's actually the first thing. So imagine you're out there hunting or you're gathering food, and all of a sudden you, you hear a rustle in the trees or the bushes behind you. You don't turn around and fight straight away or run straight away. 
You don't do that, right? What you do is you stop and you listen, right? You stop and listen because you're trying to figure out whether you fight or fly, or if it's a friend, right? Because back then, uh, if you had to go out and hunt and gather for food, you had to expel energy in order to receive energy from the food that you gathered and hunted, right? It's precious. So you didn't want to use it unnecessarily. So that, that translates into business very, very directly because most decisions that happen out there isn't a no because they don't like you. It's a no because they've decided to stick with what they have. And you're going to see that in COVID and the recession even more, right? Um, most people stick with what they have. Either that's the technology or service that you're selling, right, that they've got from someone else already and they're using it, or that they try to do it themselves. That's a very big one. They just still try to do it themselves. So the power of status quo really surprised me, right? Um, and when I started digging into the neurological elements and the psychological and the evolutionary elements as to why that's the case, I teach salespeople that your biggest competitor isn't your competitors, it's status quo. It's staying the same or going alone, right? Doing it themselves without buying it themselves. Right, that power, you've got to, you have to figure out the pain of doing that, bring it really close to them so that they feel the heat of that pain right now to motivate them to do that. That's why you've got to do your research. That's why you've got to have a story that jolts them. That's why you've got to say to them, hey, if you continue like this in one year's time, you may you're going to lose your job. And then you're going to explain to them why that's the case. The second thing that really surprised me was surprises itself, right? Uh, how nourishing, not nourishing, sorry, how rewarding that is to the brain. Your brain rewards surprises. Uh, well, not reward surprises. Your brain is looking for surprises more than anything else, right? It, it, it's a very lazy organ, right? It makes up less than 7% of your total body weight. But in a healthy adult, your brain utilizes 30% of the energy utilization in the body. That's a huge amount when you think about it. And it utilizes it from a precious thing, which is glucose. It's the only thing it can use it for. So that means it's got to, your body has to, and it doesn't always ingest glucose, right? Your body doesn't always just have glucose. It's, it's, it has energy from different sources like fats, right? And things like that. And carbohydrates. So your body has to break down fats, carbohydrates, and things like that, in order to make glucose for the body, for the brain to use. So you're back in that situation where you've got to consume energy in order to make energy for the, for the brain. It's a very lazy organ, which means that it will find ways to do things that are continuous, that are repetitive, that it's, that, that, sorry, it will find ways, it will find, it will find ways to efficiently conduct an activity that you're doing repetitively. That's why habits are formed, right? So you may have a habit of status quo, right? You've got to break your bias habits a lot of the time. Um, so surprise, uh, the power of surprises really, really surprised me. Um, that's where the whole jolt thing came into play. Um, you know, the challenger sale and other books talk about, you know, teaching and challenging your sellers, et cetera, your bias. Um, so that really, that really surprised me how powerful it was, right? And, and, and every training process that I have 
has some form of injection of surprise. You've got to keep doing that because, and you've got to keep reminding them of that surprise, reminding them of why we've got to the stage in the buying process of what you've discussed earlier. The third thing was that what I didn't know before was that your brain, your brain rewards new information in the same way as it rewards you eating sugar. Okay, that's interesting. Right? It's the same chemical pathways, right? You get the same chemical pathways if you inject heroin as, as when you eat sugar, right? Or, or if you have good experience or sex, right? It's the same. Um, information is the same. The more your brain, you, when your brain acquires information that you like, by the way, not just information that you just don't like. I mean, you've got to like it, right? Sure. But it, you, your brain sends out the same reward signals and neurochemicals, same pathways, as if you'd eaten sugar. Now think about that, because if you can figure out the emotional things that, that motivate your buyers or the person you're trying to convince to do something, if you can understand their needs, if you can understand what interests them, and you give them information that aligns to those three things, you've just given them a reward system that's the same as eating sugar, right? And, and that, that really surprised me. And, and I think the fourth thing, which is kind of connected to that, is you know, the same chemical pathways that you have for sugar and other things, just for all of those things, creates the same happiness reward neurochemical pathways as if eating sugar, et cetera. Um, so you're right in that we are all basically the same and moved by different things, but there's that perception and emotional element that's connected to that. So those are the three main things, the power of status quo, um, how surprise is so important to the brain. Your brain is designed to notice things that are out of place, designed for that. And the fact that, um, you know, information is so valuable to the brain. In fact, the brain really rewards you highly for ingesting more information that you already like. Yeah. I think those are three huge learnings that you've taken. And I think it's so interesting that you can create the same like happiness or chemical happiness in the brain through and and for example in a sales process by using those four things that you identified you know and creating like a feedback loop almost for itself and the fact that new information is the same as sugar to the brain that just that just just blows my mind i never i never heard that yeah it's i i'm it's really surprising i'll give you an example i'll give you two examples right so so you've got a driver personality it's all about goal orientation, all about growth and fast pace, right? It's a very simplistic uh, example, but if you talk about, to a driver, if you talk about how they're going to get richer quicker, it's very simplistic, right? But if you talk about how you're going to get richer quicker to someone like that, that and you give them the information to do that, man, that, that's amazing to them, right? If you try to do that with an analytical person or a scientist, probably not so much. But if you show a scientist new information about how they can be smarter in their profession, right? And in their technical field and in their field of competence, that they're like, yeah, yeah, give me more, give me more of that, give me more of that, right? So do you see what I mean? It's, it's still same info, it's still information, but it's information that they already like, right? That they're already interested in. Exactly. Um, and, 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 you know, you can't convince someone by showing them information that they're wrong. You've got to agree with them first and then show them how what you do can elevate their sense of what they feel is right. Yeah. No, that's really, really interesting. Uh, uh, that example is so simple, but it's 
It is exactly that. Speaking to people with what they want to hear, what are their triggers, and using the language that they're familiar with to convey information that they like to get them, you know, on your side or to motivate them to buy or whatever to persuade them. And I think I think everything we've spoken about today, yes, it's it was very sales focused, but these techniques and these I like processes and stuff these apply to everyday life and to speaking to anyone persuading anyone for whatever it might be so i think it's been super useful um i have two questions for you two last questions because i know i want to be conscious of our time for today and thank you so much Mary, for coming on this was i learned so much from this i wish you were my sales coach at the t- or like my manager at the time i probably would have done better but it's all good um what's the best piece of advice you got in your career and what's the last message that you'd like people to take home with them today What's the best piece of advice I got in my career? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I've been blessed to have so many amazing mentors, uh, amazing managers. And one, of, and one mentor was, um, have you heard of the Challenger Sale book by any chance? Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't read it, but I've heard of it. So, I, so the company I worked for created that book. Okay. And, I was, I, and I was mentored by one of the co-authors. He's still my mentor today. Um, What's the best piece of advice? In, in, in terms of sales or in terms of? Anything. It could be God, personal. Oh, God, there's personal. just so many. There's so many. Um, whatever, come, whatever comes to your, to your mind first, that's usually the one that, is, that sticks around. It's not, it's not the ones. I mean, firstly, sales, sales is a contact sport. That was one of, the first, one of the really big advice I got. Sales is a contact sport. It means if you're not making contact, you're not making sales. And I think that's true for life. If you're not making contact with the right people, if you're not making contact with the right books, if you're not making contact with the right videos, um, you know, you're not, you're not going to make movements. You're not going to create momentum and change. Right? So you, no matter how good your skills are, and this is why I say knowledge is potential power, not actual power, because you can acquire all that information, but unless you put it into action and make contact with the world, it, it makes no difference. So that was, that was one. The, the other advice is that um, I had it to mind just now and I, I've forgotten it. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's, it's <laughs> the, the one that I heard, which is stand guard at the door of your mind. Okay. Stand guard at the doors of your mind. And, and now in, in COVID and the recession, it, that, that is so important. Um, there's so much conspiracy theories out there and it's so easy for people to push out their own agenda through YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn. If you're not careful about what you are reading and what you're allowing, to become part of your conscious and therefore your subconscious afterwards, it can influence you in, in, the, in a way that's not conducive or, or, or benefit for you. And you've got, to, you've got to say to yourself, what am I allowed to let into my mind, both in terms of information and in terms of emotion? Right? Uh, will, I be, will I watch conspiracy theories and the news and you know, these, this kind of being fed this constant negative pill or do I decide to learn from those who are successful, learn from those 
who can elevate my emotions and help me get in control of it. Learn from people who can inspire me, right? Learn from people who are, who are growing right now while everyone else is, well, not everyone else, but while others are struggling, right? Stand guard at the door of your mind because that will determine how you show up in life. Um, your, your emotions emanate through your body. So if you change your body, you can change your emotions. That's a whole different topic, right? Um, but if you're st- fed a steady, steady stream, a steady pill every day of negativity, sooner or later it will manifest in how you view your work, how you approach your work, how you approach your family, your loved ones, your body, everything. So that was an advice that was so powerful for me, which is just stand guard at the doors of your mind. Be critical and and conscious about what you're letting in because what you're letting in will fill up the cup of the water that that you eventually drink and therefore becomes a part of you. So, so I advise my clients when I do training sessions, I give them a challenge. I give them a 10 day challenge. 10 days of not ingesting anything that's negative and 10 days of not using any negative language with anything. So uh, setbacks rather than failure, right? Uh, Challenges rather than you know, disaster, right? Uh, don't respond to things in a negative way, even if someone does something that aggravates you. I set them that 10-day challenge because I did this. And I'm not saying it's, it's perfect. You can't just do it all the time. You're going to feel angry, right? We're all human. 100%. I, I, what, what you're going to do is slowly, slowly start to reduce that from something that annoys you, makes you angry, having an effect on you for a whole day or a whole week. You're slowly starting to whittle it down because it will never serve you. It just won't serve you. Um, so, you know, I set people that 10-day challenge. So stand guard at the door of your mind, right? And the second one is sales, life, growth is a contact sport. You've got to have contact with the right people, the right books, the right videos, the right experiences, You've got to have life is really a contact sport. I think those are two amazing pieces of advice. I really like the the standard stand guard at the door of your mind. I haven't heard that before, but listening to your explanation about it, it's it's so true that we decide what we let in and what we let out. Because, like you said, if you keep that's why I personally I don't watch. There's a lot of times I don't watch the news because it's just negative all the time, and it just it just it's just upsetting and nothing. Nothing changes. You never see someone just happy doing whatever they might be, just like cooking, for example. It's just something terrible, something negative. And like you said, it doesn't serve you and it will over time, it will start to affect you in ways. And it's funny that Amal actually also said that, that she advises her clients not to watch the news either because that affects, that can affect their like healing journey and all that kind of stuff. So it's so interesting that from both sides, it's kind of it's kind of the same result. Yeah, she's far better at far better better at it than I am. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's and by the way, everything I'm t- telling you is not me being a trainer or, or an expert and kind of talking not down to people, but from a certain end. I've experienced all of these things. I, I learned more about being a great salesperson or a great persuader from doing some horrible mistakes, right? Making some very horrible mistakes. Um, I've learned all those mistakes. I've gone through stages where I let all these negative things in my mind for over a year, maybe two years, and it had an effect. So I know firsthand, 
the advice that I'm giving is based on first-hand experience as well as the research that we do with so many other people. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's that last one was very powerful for me. Yeah. No, I think uh, I really like that one and I resonate with it a lot. Um, the the last question that I ask all my guests is what is the message you'd like people to take home with them today? I think the, the message that, the, there are two messages here that I, I, I want to, everyone to take away from this. Number one is be kind to yourself. What I mean by that is the way you view yourself has a big part to play in how you show up in life. Um, if you view yourself as inferior, insignificant, uh, as just a salesperson, right, then that's not going to serve you, right? Um, stop talking down to yourself, right? Um, say good things about yourself. And I'm not talking about affirmations or incantations and things like that necessarily, although they have their, their, their value. But, but write down all the great things about you. Um, because how you view yourself has a big element on how you show up in life and how other people will view you. The second thing is emotions are so powerful. So, so powerful. And if you understand the emotions of yourself and the people that you're engaging with, particularly those that you're engaging with, right, for this particular second point, if you understand the emotions that they're going through, all the things I talked about, like research, do your homework, look, yeah, that comes from the emotion, right? Because buyers just don't want to engage with someone that's just going to waste their time, right? So you want to avoid that emotion. How do I avoid that emotion? Well, I come across as an expert. How do I become an expert? Got to do my homework. Got to research. Got to read up about it. Got to learn. So remember how powerful emotions are, right? It, 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 it governs such a huge amount of our anatomy and how we do things that you just cannot get away from it. Um, whatever decision, right? A buyer is not going to buy from you because their emotion is about, you know, they don't want to lose their job or their career standing or their reputation if they make a wrong decision and buy from you. Right? That's what it boils down to a lot of the time. Right? A person's not going to promote you and only for you to fail at your job because it's going to make he or she look bad. Okay? And so be aware of those emotions. So number one, be kind to yourself and, and, and realize the great things about you and give yourself a new identity. Right? And number two, remember how powerful emotions are in every decision that we make. The how and the why of the decisions and the behaviors we take are rooted somewhere in some form of emotion that we're trying to satisfy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can see all this on, on, my, um, on, on my websites and stuff like that. So I don't know if you were going to ask this. Yeah, yeah. So the, if, if people need any more information, they can go to the proverbialdoor.com? Yeah, so, so there's, there's quite a few resources. So proverbialdoor.com. Um, and I can share the link with you guys if you're going to have show notes and things sure. like that. Um, so proverbialdoor.com, you'll find me on LinkedIn under Moed Amin. I'm also on Instagram under proverbialdoor as well. Uh, Facebook, the same. Um, and Twitter is door proverbial. Uh, so it's the other way around. Uh, but you will find me on all those. I'm also on Medium. So I, I publish articles on Medium sometimes as well. Um, so there are several of those, of those places. But those are kind of the main ones where you can find out more information about what I do. And also read and watch some of these interviews and articles and advice that we publish. You know, more than 80% of 
of what we do is free uh, to help people out. Um, YouTube, we're starting to grow some of the videos there. And I'm going to be doing some regular videos now on YouTube that I'm recording. So, so connect with us on, on YouTube as well under the same channel, Proverbial Door, and you'll start to see regular advice on things like objection handling, how to do the best type of research. You know, if your buyer says this, what does that likely mean? Those kind of things that help salespeople so they can better persuade. Yeah. yeah. I think, first of all, Marie, I wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the show today and for your time. I really, really appreciate it. I loved our conversation. I learned so much from you. And I think anyone in sales could learn so much from this conversation. And just about persuasion and how people think and, you know, behavior psychology and just how it all plays into plays in together. And I loved the advice you want people to take home, which is to be kind to yourself and to realize how important emotions are and to be aware of other people's emotions so you can, you know, have the best chance to either persuade them, influence them, or even just to develop a stronger emotional connection. Or just connect with them. Yeah, exactly. 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 So... Uh, it was a great, great interview. Uh, great questions. So thank you for that. Thank, I, really, thank, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate it uh, to everyone. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I really appreciate it. And as always, hope it helps. Peace.